It's a terrible chapter to be, uh, to be strapped down to a microphone. It's a bit cruel, to be honest, especially considering we're in, in Exodus chapter 12. I just love this chapter. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. And then open them up, please, to Exodus chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, it's right after Exodus chapter 11. (laughs) Just trying to help. Go to the Lord with me in prayer, if you would, please. So we can dig right in. God, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to come to you today. And to be able to expect your word to do great things. And even if I am a bit chained by microphones, Lord, I do thank you that your word is unchained and your gospel is unchained. And I pray that today that we would find ourselves in love with you. We would find ourselves understanding you better, loving you more, wanting you more. I pray, God, today that that your word would burst open and come alive for us, God. That we would have so much fun in your word today. And God, that it would mean more to us than it ever has. Especially for those who might be a bit familiar with this story. And I pray, God, that you would remind us this is real people that we're speaking of here. With real lives who've been really transformed as we watch this chapter unfold before us. And so, God, I pray for that fresh anointing that you would redeem every second and that you would minister in this time, please, that we could be ministered to. Speak to each one of us individually where we need to hear you, as well as corporately. And God, I just thank you for the love that you pour out, and let there just be this sweet sense of your presence here today. Will you tell us that in your presence is the fullness of joy? May we walk in that total joy today. And we thank you for the honor of this time, Lord. Now let's just have fun as we open your word. Unpack our hearts to what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be that for which you test all things true or false. Egypt has now been decimated. That's sort of this condition of the land after the locusts and the hail and a darkness that can be felt. The air is black. The land is pummeled. The people have been declared unclean and Pharaoh is scrambling for any shed or shred of control that is left. Jesus had warned us in Matthew 12:29 and in Luke 11:21 that when a strong man keeps his house he feels safe and at ease until somebody stronger than him comes in and takes all his spoils even the armor that he trusted in. Pharaoh was now left at a place where the only thing left to take down is Pharaoh. Now, for some people, that will be their testimony. For some, it won't. God has systematically taken down everything that Egypt has worshipped. But I remind you, for 430 years, Israel has been in Egypt. And obviously, longer than that, Egypt has been in Egypt. And God loving the Egyptian... God loving the Israeli wants them all to know that He is not a Lord, not one of the Lords. 
He is the Lord. And the only way to prove that is to be the only one standing when all other gods are down. And so that's where we're at here. In Exodus 12.1 we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to the, each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. When God is about to bring this thing to a close, this battle between Pharaoh who claimed the Israelis were his people and God who claimed that those people are his people, God always works on levels more than just, let's just get the people out. If God wanted to get Israel out of Egypt, he could have just killed everybody in Egypt that was Egyptian, and then just said, well, go and leave. But God, in his love for the Egyptian, and in his love for the Israeli, wants to make sure that Israel doesn't take Egypt with them. Oh, they will anyways. And so God now at the pinnacle, we are at the crescendo, that place where the plot hits the ark, and now we're at the apex where the thing's got to go down. God picks this. Think of all the things He could have picked. He could have said, on this night, a giant rooster is going to fly over the place, and it's going to go, and everyone's going to fall asleep and you'll leave. He could have. He could have said, tonight the entire area of Egypt will be attacked by polar bears. Seems a little strange, but this is God we're speaking about. This isn't a problem. They could have been overridden by kangaroos. They could have actually said, I'm going to flood the entire land and you guys are all going to have special floaties. But he didn't do any of those things. It wasn't like God was just simply being creative and fun. God's been working on something here for quite a while. Back in Genesis 22... When God chooses to introduce the word love, by the way, when he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. When God chooses to introduce love, he does through a father offering his son. Not a man loving a woman, not a father loving his children, but first and foremost, one father, one son. For which, of course, the son will be spared in Genesis 22. And the boy's no dummy. He's carrying the wood. They're going up the mountain. And he looks at his father and he says, in a loose paraphrase, Dad, if we're going up for the sacrifice, we've got everything but the sacrifice. We've got the wood. We've got the fire. We don't have the lamb. Now, the word in the Hebrew for lamb is seh. Try that word if you would. Seh. Now, come on, there's one of me. I, granted, I have a mic. There's many of you. You should be. There's Hebrew. You can't say, eh, seh. Try it. There we go. There's some seh in it. And so, Father, he asks, you know, he asks then, where is the seh? Is the idea there. And the Father turns around and he says, God will provide himself to be, or himself, 
the sech for us. Now that's a pretty simple thing. And just as he's about to slay his son, God stops him. Another reason to encourage you to stay current with God. And then, it says, and then they look, and in the bushes they find an ayil. Can you say ayil? Now listen to those two words. Sech. Ayil. Do they sound remotely the same to you? That's because they're not. Now, we look at it and we read, where's the lamb? God will provide himself a lamb. And look, in, the, sh- in the, the thicket there was a ram. And we go, well, technically I guess that works for a sacrifice. But the father did not say God will provide himself just a sacrifice. He says God will provide himself to be the sech. Now, classic way of doing Hebrew, by the way, Hebrew teaching is, you present something and then you go, hmm, that stirs up some questions. I need to go find out the answers. And God loves that. See, God creates within us a sense of curiosity. Now, we can really muck with that and turn it into terrible things. As a matter of fact, a lot of addictions come out of, started with curiosity. Now, it isn't like you wake up and say, I wonder what it would be like to be addicted to crack or heroin. But you kind of wake up and say, I wonder what it would be like to feel that high. And that's how that kind of stuff starts. And that's just a very misuse of an appetite God gave you. And that appetite is curiosity. And when he presents things like that, you go, hmm, well, where is that sech? That's not a sech, that's an ayil. Where's the sech? The next time we see that word is here. So I've gone from God will provide himself to be that Seth, to this chapter. So he's been setting me up for this whole lamb thing for quite a while. Now here we are in a place when I remind you the Egyptians saw shepherds as an abomination. They saw sheep as a filthy, nasty thing. And the Lord speaks to Aaron and Moses. And notice again, it says in verse 2, these are going to be the beginning of months. God is rearranging the entire calendar. He says from this point now, <clears throat> we're basically at March, April. He says, this is, you know, you've heard it said, many of you, this is the first day of the rest of your lives. And that's the idea here. And what I love about this is God's not going to do it again. It isn't like God's going to look at somebody else and go, we know, but for you, you can start in October, but for you. Because God is setting us up to say, look it, this event is so paramount. This event is so important that your whole life starts right now. Now understand, some of those people are 80. Some of those people are 90. But God says, your life starts now. This is when the whole thing starts for you. What's the difference between this point, before and after? At the sacrifice of this specific lamb, you went from being in bondage under the hand of the enemy in the land of slavery to being free to being set free, released, to abscond from the land of your bondage to a place that God is calling you to. And God says, now your life begins. It's as if you were being born all over again. And isn't that the term we use as Peter would, as Jesus would when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus, of course, in John 3 looks and says, that's impossible. Do you know how small my mother is? Do you realize how big I am? Jesus goes, you've already been physically born. Now you need to be spiritually born. Which tells me, by the way, 
that the moment you, your face came out to see this planet and you breathed your first breath of air, you were physically alive, but you were spiritually dead. And there are some people that will exist on this planet never being spiritually alive. Are you aware of that? And there are some who will be born again. But God wants every human being born again, including you. Now, if you've not been born again, understand that God wants to get you there and it's going to cost the sacrifice to get you there. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, God says He formed man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed life into him, the breath of life. And then man became a living being. Now that is key because... 22 words beforehand, he was already called man. God formed man. The moment he formed him, boom, he's man. But he wasn't living until the end of the verse when God breathed into him. Somewhere in between the two, man went from being just man to being a living man. Now, God looks and he says, now new life begins. Speak, verse 3, speak to the congregation of Israel and say, on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take for himself. And notice the progression. In verse 3, it says, a lamb. Would you say, a lamb? That was, uh, come on now, there's more of you than that. A lamb. Don't worry about being charismatic or any of that. This is, this is, this is where you can't possibly sleep. A lamb. Notice the progression. He says, now look it. I want you to take that lamb according to the house of your father, according to the lamb for each household. And if the household is too small, verse 4, by the way, it never says that the lamb is ever going to be too small for the household, but the household could be too small for the lamb. Notice in verse 4, we went from a lamb to the lamb. Would you say the lamb? Notice in verse 3, it was a lamb. Verse 4, it is the lamb. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each person's need, shall take it in account for the lamb. Verse 5, what's the third in that progression? You tell me, what does it say? Okay, everyone give it to me now. Your lamb. Now listen, a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And that's the way it works for a lot of people. You're out there and people, you ask them, who is Jesus? And they'll tell you he's a prophet, a nice guy, a good teacher, a miracle worker. Oh, they'll come up with all kinds of things in the salad bar of religion. Pick a little of this, leave a little of that back behind. But sooner or later, you get to realize Jesus isn't just A. He is the. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The way. The truth. The life. The light of the world. Not a light of the world. The good shepherd. Not a good shepherd. The true vine. Not a true vine. The resurrection, the life. Jesus never claimed to be a, he claimed to be the. But that's not enough. And we're going to see that with the blood. He has to become your lamb. Without him becoming your lamb, 
You'll have all the information to damn you. And he tells us about this lamb that needs to be yours. He has to be, notice in verse 5, perfect and in his prime, without blemish, a male in his first year. In verse 6 it says, you keep him until the 14th day of the same month. And that's interesting. You set aside the lamb on the 10th day. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. That's five days one way or another. On the 14th day, he's going to be killed. If you study Jewish tradition on this, they'll tell you that those days are called the days of inspection. Those are the days when, because of the amount of lamb that is to be inspected to make sure that it was perfect or right for sacrifice, that they needed some time to be able to weather through all of those lambs. Interesting, because when we take a look at the story of Jesus, the first thing he has identified as is the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world twice. John will say that, by the way, both in chapter 1 of the chapter of John. In between that, after this Lamb here, we'll see the Lamb as the sacrifice for your sin, for your, <coughs> excuse me, for your trespasses, for all you've done wrong, a lamb is sacrificed for it in the book of Leviticus. And then after that, we'll get to Isaiah 53, 7, where it says, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now, up to that point, we were good with the lamb because it's a lamb, 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 lamb. And then it's a he. But that takes us back to Genesis when it says, God will provide himself to be that lamb. And all of a sudden, these two beautiful roads meet. The lamb that's the sacrifice, the lamb that has to be your lamb, the lamb that is going to be slaughtered. And in all of that, then there's the he, God providing himself to be. So then when we get to the point where the one book, do you know what one book focuses on that more than any other? The book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, by the way, we get that the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down and cry out, Worthy, 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 holy, 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 to are you to the Lamb in 5.12 to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every creature on the planet and in the heavens and in the earth cry this out in 5.13. An innumerable multitude in 7.10 about the Lamb. In 7.17 of Revelation, it says that the Lamb Himself will shepherd them, which is an interesting thought, that the Lamb becomes the shepherd. In 17.14, the world wants to make war against little sheepy, but they all lose because that Lamb is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. In 21.22, that Lamb is our temple. And in 23, verse 23, that lamb is our light. That's why we don't need a temple in heaven. That's why we don't need a light in heaven, because the lamb is both. And the lamb will never be too small for a household. The lamb will always be more than enough. But that lamb needs to be your lamb. Now, Jesus could have been the rhinoceros of God. Could have been. He could have been the porcupine of God. He could have been, and you put whatever animal you think there, though he's the lion of the tribe of Judah seen from heaven. Why a lamb? Because they're just so darn unscary. Even people who are afraid of little things aren't afraid of lambs. He could have said the guinea pig of God. 
For most people, that'd be okay. But for some of y'all, I recognize anything close to a rodent will send you to the roof. You go, but it's a little furry thing. But it's, I don't even want to get there. But you get the idea. But, I mean, pick an animal. It's like God could have said the teddy bear of God had they been invented. And the idea is simple. When Jesus comes to this planet, he comes to this planet to be approachable. He doesn't come to be prickly. He doesn't come so you would have to stand at a distance. Though he in heaven dwells in an approachable light, he knows how to turn that down so you could be with him. Though his voice splinters the cedars of Lebanon, he knows how to have an indoor voice so you can hear him. And this God who so loves you came as a lamb and God showed his might through him. Now here it says, with this lamb, he needs to be in his prime. He needs to be, by the way, perfect. And then it says you'll keep him to the 14th, 14th day from the 10th. Now interesting, because when Jesus, my king, arrives in Jerusalem for Passover, this particular celebration, from Monday through Friday, he will be interrogated. If remember, that's when they ask questions like, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? That's what they did. That whole, there's that gal who had married and, you know, her husband's died. And what about that? And, and, and all of those questions. And I can't help but think, well, that's interesting because Moses had set up, God had set up through Moses, that those days would be days of inspection to make sure that the lamb was right. And Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and what happens? The same thing. But don't miss this in verse 6. Look at it with me in your scripture so you know I'm not making it up. Though every household's taking a lamb for themselves, notice at verse 6 it says, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. Did you see the singular there? Though this ceremony is going to have a lamb in every house, unless the household is too small and they share, God has one specific lamb in mind, his own son. So it is singular. And verse 7 he says, Now this is what you need to do. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, can you say this after me? And I'm not going to try to make you do this all day. The blood must be applied. You try that. The blood must be applied. That becomes the problem. God didn't say, I want you to know, I want you to tell me everything about that blood. I want you to become a bloodologist. I want you to sit and have a TV program, and I want you to be able to tell me about all the different types of blood. I want you to develop a whole program on how to defend the blood. Give me archaeological evidence and logical reasons why the blood. He says, you have to apply it. Because in the end of it all, it doesn't matter how much you know or don't know, whether or not you're willing to act in faith to apply the blood is going to be the issue. And just the same way that it has, it's not going to be a lamb or even the lamb, but your lamb, but it has to be the lamb first. It isn't like you can make up whatever lamb you want. That blood has to be, the blood of that lamb has to be applied. And there are those that say, well, I'm a Christian, and I'll say, Really? And I want to see how they've applied the blood. And I say, well, you know, what, what made you a Christian? Well, you know, I've, I've always been a Christian. Funny, we're, we're born spiritually stillborn. I don't know how you were born one. That's like saying I was born married. Somewhere down the line, you have to stand at an altar and say, I do. Now, there are some countries where maybe that was the case, but sooner or later, you still have a choice to make. 
in the end of it all, the Bible says, if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. There is a choice to be made. This isn't about just, I went to church and became a Christian. Then you could go into, a, into an MOT and become an automobile. Then you can walk into a McDonald's and become a hamburger. Or almost a hamburger. I mean, that's what can happen if that's the way it is. This doesn't happen by osmosis. There's a choice to be made. Could you imagine you went to a wedding and everyone walked out married? No, the couple who made the choice came out married. Now, some of you, you may show up at weddings hoping you could come out married, but in the end of it all... You've got to apply the blood. And God has made that really clear. In Exodus 24, that same blood, by the way, will consecrate people for service. It'll consecrate the covenant. It'll ratify that covenant. It'll consecrate the high priest and his service by 29.20. In Deuteronomy 21.8, he says the blood is the life. In 12.23, it makes atonement. In Ephesians 2.13, that blood draws me near to God, though I was once an alien to him. In Colossians 1.20, that blood makes peace. In Hebrews 9.12, I've been redeemed by that blood. In 9.14, I've been cleansed. And listen to this beautiful verse. It says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience, listen, listen, from dead works to serve the living God. I love that. In other words, there was a time when you just did the ritual. You did all of those things because you felt like you had to do those things and it was an empty ritual. But the blood... Yeah, I mean, how do you do dead rituals to serve a living God? That's silly. That's silly. Could you imagine? Marcy gets married one day to a guy, and let's just call him Hugo. Gigantic, gigantic man named, named Hugo. And they walk down the aisle, and then from the moment they say, I do, I do, I do. <laughs> and then they walk off, and then she like comes back the next day, and she goes, and she comes in, and she's like, and she lights some incense, and she walks out of the room. And he goes like, what, what was that? And she's like, see you next week. See you next week. Uh, um, is this supposed to be our honeymoon? Is this going to be like the rest of our marriage? And then he tries to call her, and she's busy. He texts her, thinking about you. She's like, cool, because I need, I need, I need, my will be done. I need, where are you? I need you to give me more. Where are you? I need you to give me more. This was a rough day. Why weren't you there? You didn't invite me. She comes back next week. Lights a little incense, walks out of the room, and he's like, what, what was that again? She's like, doesn't that make you happy? He's like, no, it's just weird. But you know what? I, I, and I don't mean to pick on something that can be a little bit more established. But if you go to a fellowship, by the way, where the entire mass or le- you know whatever is in a language you don't even understand, and you heard a guy speak a language that no one's had spoken for like 1,600 years, with all due respect, and you think somehow in it like there's going to be magic in the air, and it's you know it's sort of like incense turned into fairy dust, and you're like you know I touched a little water, smelled a little incense. 
Got a little bit of colored light through a stained glass window on me. Should be good. It would be okay if God weren't living, but because he's alive and he died to be with you and rose again to have a relationship with you, how do you do empty works, dead works, and serve a living God with that? Some guy goes, oh, don't worry. Jesus died to be with you, so I'm going to go talk to him for you behind a wall. How lame would that be? Well, here's, and, and again, I'm not trying to, I'll just, I don't want to pick on anyone. I want to pick on everyone. Um, and I, I look at, and I'm, I'm not trying to be offensive. What I'm trying to be is real. Because we all have our faults. But the one that drives me the most crazy, and I'll just say, and maybe just because I came from a little bit of this background as a kid, is imagine that, and we'll, we'll just, we'll pick on someone else. Someone else, let's just say a girl named Flané. Flané meets some guy, and his, and his name's George. And the two of them, they fall madly in love. And, you know, and George is just an amazing, wonderful man of God. He, he loves, he's just a great, awesome guy. And they stand at the altar, and Janae's there. And Sister Angie's like, you better be good. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. You know Sister Angie, Flanay's mom, um, Sister Flange. And, and then the whole bit, and then get this, right? They get married. They're about to go on their honeymoon. And, and, and Flanay wants to talk to George. And she calls on the phone, and, and, and his mom answers. And, and she says, um, can I speak to my husband, please? And she's like, oh, no, no, no. He's way too special to speak with you personally. You're going to have to speak to me from now on. And I think, wow, could you imagine how crazy that would be? But there are groups that will say, look it, God's so holy, you're going to have to talk to his mother. Which is funny because in a lot of those places, mom gets more PR than he does. Or, you know what, he's so holy, you're going to have to talk to this other guy because somehow he's ascended. Jesus died to be with you. And if he was a lamb so he could be approachable, he wasn't intimidated by your filth or your mess. And he's, you come as you are, I'll love you enough to receive you as you are, but I love you way too much to leave you that way. And I will change you because I love you. And the reason I say that is, in the end of it all, you're going to have to apply the blood yourself. And he's going to have to be your king. And he wants to deliver you from empty works to serve the living God. And he's a living God who, by the way, loves to have a relationship with you. I enter boldly to the Holy of Holies through that blood in Hebrews 10.19. That blood, according to 1 John 1.7, cleanses me from all sin. In Revelation 7.14, that blood washes my garments. And in Revelation 12, 11, it's by the blood of the Lamb is one of the three things by which I overcome. Do you know why I overcome? Not because I'm a bloodologist. Not because I can tell you I think Jesus was typo negative. Yeah, I'm sure he was more positive than that. Because that blood's been applied to me. It covers me now. And from that, my heart can cry, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's no other font I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Now, what about the rest of it? Okay, so you've got some blood and you're going to put it on two places. If you were to look at a door post, there's the, or the door, a door frame, the door posts are on the side, the lintel's the part at the top, so you're going to have to put it on the two sides, you're going to have to put it at the top, and the animal's normally slaughtered at the door. So that kind of, for what it's worth, if you're the kind that likes that kind of thing, what you've got is blood on the sides, blood at the top, and then the lamb at the bottom, for what that's worth, much like a cross. And it says, well, let's talk about the lamb for a second. Verse 8. They shall eat that flesh on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. By the way, those of you who've been at one of our Passovers, you know we eat bitter herbs. That's part of what's required in it. I want you to recognize it's been there since the first one. And the idea is to remind you of the bitterness of the slavery you came from. And it says that with that bitter herbs, they'll eat of it. Don't eat it raw, not boiled with water, which by the way, as far as I'm concerned, hallelujah, but roasted in fire. And that means, man, that's a barbecue. I don't know about you, but I think God just loves us. Um, its head and its legs and in its entrails. And if you think, what? Really? Well, some of you might be the places where there are countries where I think that's the part they eat first. I'm not sure why that is. But notice verse 11, verse 10. This is, I love this escape clause. You shall let none of it remain until morning. What remains until morning you'll burn in fire. Now, in other words, that lamb is going to be totally consumed whether you eat it or not. How the, the variable is not going to be whether the lamb is going to be consumed. Please hear me on that. The lamb is going to be consumed regardless. The question is how much of it I partake in it or not. That's the question. There are some that say, well, but if God really wanted everyone saved and, and if he really left a choice, well, then some of the blood of the lamb will be wasted. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. But the lamb was consumed right from the beginning. There was always more lamb than there will be need. There'll always be more. And as far as I'm concerned, my first thought is entrails, head, tail, that goes to the fire. I'll take the meat. Well, <coughs> verse 11. Now, maybe you're the kind that likes tripe. Good. Well, we can eat together and you can have that part. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and a staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Pesach or Passover. And I like this. God says, now now listen, imagine if, now let's say maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. You haven't accepted the gift of Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, the death of the Lamb, the perfect sacrifice for your guilt. Well, let me let you know, the moment you accept Jesus, get ready. Things are going to change. And it isn't like God has a plan to change things starting Wednesday. And what He says here is, the moment this Lamb becomes your Lamb, The moment this blood is applied, I want you ready. I don't want you thinking, well, I'll start with this, raise my hand, okay, I'll take Jesus, and then maybe in a month we'll see if anything changes. Be ready for change. And I like that. (coughs) I wish that that would be something shared every time when I hear someone talk about the cross of Christ. Because God wants to change you. Why? Because He doesn't like you for who you are? You don't like you for who you are. God wants to change the things even you hate about you, which first and foremost is your guilt and your bondage. I remind you, this is the beginning of a new life now, friends. So he says, look at three things. The belt on your waist. Now, understand, it's so hard to deal with a mic that's, well, anyways, I'll try not to complain because Scripture says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. So why sin in front of you? Why doing? All right, well, 
You wore a muumuu. Guys wore muumuus, right? I mean, that was the idea. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, it kind of goes down to here, right? And you kind of wore your thing. But when you were going to get ready to go somewhere, you took the back end of it, and you grabbed that, whoop, you pulled that thing up, and you tucked it in, and you kind of looked like you were ready to sumo. That was kind of the idea. Now you kind of had a onesie. You're walking around, that thing was tucked in. And the idea was, is that you didn't want to trip on your, you know, your skirt or whatever when you were out going to do something. So when he says your belt around your waist, that isn't just mean like you, we don't want your trousers found and down. The idea of it is get ready because you're going to do, you are going to do something and do things differently than you did before. So be ready for it. And then he says, I want your shoes on. Now, today the idea would be, look at, I don't want you in a suit. I want you in the kind of clothes that are going to make that you're going to get ready to get, get sweaty and get dirty in. So put on your track outfit. Put on some, put on some jeans you can get grubby in. A shirt you're going to sweat in because we're going now. I don't want you putting on your PJs. This isn't a time for sleeping. And then second, man, get on some trainers because we're moving. Because you are going to go places you've never gone before. And I remind you, for 430 years, these people, all they've known is bondage. And he's like, man, I could take you out to the wilderness. And at first you're going to think that's good because at least it's not bondage. That it's going to be so much better than that if you have faith. But then the third thing, and I like this, not only are you going to go and go and do new things and go to new places. Interesting, by the way, by the way, you're going to be putting on a pair of shoes, and I don't know if you realize this, but according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, and, and Nehemiah 9, 21, those shoes aren't going to wear out the whole time they're in the wilderness. And I think that's kind of, what happens to the kid whose feet are still growing? Do they grow with them? Or do they swap them for the next guy? Because, in other words, whatever shoes you're putting on at this moment, you're going to be wearing for quite a while. You wouldn't think, well, we'll stop at the desert store somewhere. There's got to be a Nike store somewhere in the middle of by Mount Sinai, Nike Town or something. No, no, nothing like that. These shoes aren't wearing out. And so you're throwing them on, I'm getting ready to go. But then he goes and grab your staff. Now, who carries a staff? Shepherds carry a staff. Leaders carry a staff. Because the reason is, is you're there to protect. And you know what? When something comes after your sheep, that thing isn't there for, for, as an ornament. That thing is there for purpose. And, what, and look at this. God isn't just saying that to a handful of people. He's talking to the men. Listen, men. He's talking to the men. And how do I know that? Because later he's going to tell us there were 660,000 Hebrew men. This is, now men, grab your staff. Because you know what's going to be different? You're going to lead. I'm going to turn you into a leader. Or maybe you've been a follower. Maybe all you've really wanted to be is the newest member of One Direction. But now God's like, you are going to be a leader. And that's going to be new. And I'm calling you to this. And I want you to get ready. And this is not a meal that you're going to eat and just kick back. This is a meal you eat with one eye open and one foot out the door because it's the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt and on that night I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against notice how many gods according to verse 12? How many gods? What does it say here? How many? Oh, and there's more than four of you in here. How many? All. All the gods. There is not going to be a God left that they worship. Every idol is down. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. And you know why? Because I'm the Lord. In other words, the boss says every poser is going down tonight. 
Now this blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's how we get the word Passover. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What God wants to see is the blood. And again, if the lamb were slaughtered, they'd eaten the lamb and they said, well, that was wonderful. We burn it. He's like, God's like, I still need to see the blood. I want to see the blood. I want, no, don't want it just to be something you're playing with. So on this day, well, it says, verse 14, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations. You will keep it as a feast of an everlasting ordinance. This spills into eternity, beloved. You're going to see this there. When God takes you out, <coughs> excuse me, from this temporary world, you're going to see that the slaughtering of the, of the lamb has eternal consequence. And of course, that brings us to Jesus. Verse 15, notice what it says. There's another part of this that you need to know. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. And whoever wants to eat unleavened bread from their house on the first day to the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. Now understand, leaven in its simplest sense is something that dies. When you put leaven in bread, it decays. It's the decay that causes the bread to rise. And God's like, I don't want any death in your house while we're doing this. It's interesting. When Jesus talks about leaven, he speaks of it in, re- in regards to sin. He says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven in Matthew 13, 33, but that's not a good thing. Because in 16, 7, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Mark 8, 15, he'll say, Even of Herod, which, Mark, I'm sorry, which Matthew 16, 12 says is the doctrine of. And in Luke 12, 1 says that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. By 1 Corinthians 5, 8, it says, Let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. From the first day, it says to the seventh day, I don't want any leaven in the house. Verse 16, it says, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. This will be the first of 15 times this is said. And the idea is simple. I want you guys to set this time apart so you guys can get together. Don't you love the fact that God does that? He's like, look at I don't want you to be a loner. I don't want you living on your own somewhere. As a matter of fact, it says in Proverbs 18.1, whoever seeks to isolate themselves seeks only their own benefit and rages against all reason. Well, in those 15 times, he'll talk about the Sabbath. Once a week, he wants all of, all of his people to get together. At the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28 and 29, make really clear, those days are sacred assemblies. In other words, I don't want you to make any other plans than this. Listen, God never intended church to be something that it's like you tick your box because you've done it for an hour or two and you're done. It's like, I want this to be a time when my people get together and love me, and I love them. And they love each other. If Jesus says, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the love you have one for another, we should probably be around each other enough for the world to see that we love each other. Does that make sense? I mean, it isn't like the world will know you're the disciples by the long-distance love you have for one another. Because you guys are all so kind on Facebook. There's so much more to it than that. Verse 16, it says, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation until the seventh day. There shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done for them, on them, but that which you must, everyone must eat. That only may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, 
For on the same day that I brought out your armies out of the land of Egypt, you shall observe this day throughout the generation as an everlasting ordinance. And you go, no, wait a minute, armies? Armies? You know, they've been slaves. I would imagine if you kept slaves, you probably wouldn't want them to form into batches of armies. And I do like this, because up to this point, you know what they were called before this? Families. And God says, on this day when I deliver you, families become armies. Sinners become soldiers. And it doesn't surprise me then, if your family is now going to become an army, why it would also therefore become a target. Look at the day you said yes to Jesus, if you have, you became part of the Lord's army. And you just need to know that. Now, I'm not here to say, look, at get all hoity-toity about it and get all big on yourself. Our commander is the victorious one. He's undefeated. But we have the privilege of marching behind him as he leads us in victory. So listen, you're now part of an army. One of the reasons we get together like this is to be reminded of the fact that you're getting shot at, but so does everyone else. But God is our great healer. How could we not be undefeatable that even if the enemy could shoot right through us, Jesus could heal us? On the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days no leavened bread shall be found. No leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a stranger or a native to the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Now listen, don't miss this. Because this gets beautiful. When this happens, when this is, by the way, called a chemesh. Could you say chemesh? That was not bad. It was, God bless you. Uh, <coughs> now, chemesh, by the way, the idea of it is you drive out the chemesh. To this day, it gets to be a big ceremony. Before the Passover gets celebrated, you actually, they get this like, last bit of yeast and they drive it out with a feather. Just to make sure it's all been, listen, you drive it out of your house. That which is death. That which produces death. That's which puffs up, but really serves no great purpose. And he says, now listen, I want you to drive it out of your house. Get it out of your house so it could be holy, so we could spend this time together. Now, interesting, because on the same day that people are driving out the chemesh from their houses, Jesus goes to his house, the temple. And you know what he does on that day? He drives out the, tax, or the, uh, the money changers and the people who sold the doves and the other sacrifices. And do you get the idea? You know what Jesus was doing? He was driving out the Hamesh from his house to have the Passover. So it doesn't surprise me. And he says, get these out of here. Now, verse 21, are you following me so far? It's the blood. It's the lamb. Verse 21, it says, So Moses then called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of your door or your house till morning. It's interesting. Of all the things he picked, hyssop. Now, does anyone even know what hyssop is? Now, some of you, if you're actually from the Middle East, you know that there's something called zatar. And zatar is hyssop. It's, just, it's actually an herb, and it's a salty herb. We use it a lot on some of the things at our house. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to taste. It's a beautiful leafy, a leafy tree, but in that, that leafy herb, 
But in that, it's interesting because God set us up. He introduces hyssop with this. And it's interesting because hyssop, according to Scripture, is the thing that applies the blood in all cases. According to Hebrews 9, it tells us that, man, if you were going to do it in regards to the priest or the book of the law or the people, it was hyssop that did it. And it was interesting because it was the same thing that was used only in really two other places. In Leviticus 14, when a person had leprosy, but they were declared clean, hyssop was part of the sacrifice. And I thought, that's fascinating. Because what, listen, 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 don't miss this. Leprosy numbs you to death. Now, I could develop it all day, but I won't. But basically, the little spaces between your nerves that fire shut down so they no longer get that information. So what happens is, though the pain happens, it doesn't get to your brain to signal that it really hurts. So what happens is, your body starts to decay. What happens is, your body doesn't filter all of that dead skin so dead skin doesn't get filtered off for fresh skin because that's part of what your nerves do. If your hand's in the fire, you'll smell it before you, because you won't feel it. You'll wake up, by the time you get to the point where you are really, really numb, you will wake up at the sound of rats eating your toes, but you won't wake up by the, by the, by the uh, pain of it. Because you become so, please, please hear me, you become so numb that you numb yourself to death. And the reason I even give you that, that much of that illustration is because the other time it's used. The other time it's used is in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, there was a king who had everything except for his bodyguard's wife. And he sees her bathing on a rooftop when he should have been out in battle. He calls her to himself. He has his own servants bring her to him. He impregnates her, tries to get her husband to come in and make it think like he did it, but he's too noble. He has her husband murdered and then marries her to try to look like a good guy. And in all of that, he has numbed himself to death. He says, when I remain silent, my bones grew old. They were dry like the drought of summer. God, in his love, sends a prophet named Nathan, which, by the way, means gift. And he says, hey, I got this story. There's this guy, and he's got a sheep, and he goes back to the sheep thing. He's got all of these sheep. He's got all of this livestock. And the guy next to him has one sheep, like a pet, like a daughter to him. And this rich guy has a guy drop by, and as a result of that, he wants to do something. So he goes and he kills the other guy's sheep. David flies off the handle of the king and he gets so angry. And he goes, that guy should die for it. And he goes, king, that's you. You had everything but this guy's sheep, but his wife. And you, kill, and you, you did this to her anyways. And David repents and he cries out to the Lord, please hear me, beloved. At that point, David says, have mercy on me. And then he says, cleanse me with hyssop. And that's what a person would be cleansed who had leprosy. David had spiritual leprosy. He had been so numb that he no longer would cry out to God. And let me ask you, what about you, saints? Are you in a place today where you just feel like you no longer feel the impact of the Holy Spirit on your life? Well, the Lord's here to let you know that it has to go back to the blood and to the Lamb being your Lamb. 
So take that bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood which is in the basin, strike the lintel of the doorpost of the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood in the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass that when you come into the land that the Lord has given you, that the Lord gives you, just as he promised that you will keep this service. And it will be that when your children say to you, why are we doing this? What do you mean by this service? And again, notice the Lord has set this up so that it will solicit questions. You'll say it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So how, does the, how did the people respond? Notice what it says in verse 27. They bowed their heads and, he worked, and they worshipped. Then the children of Israel went their way and did so just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The inevitable response to God's love like this is to humble yourself and worship Him. Now listen, we could take the rest of the chapter, but to be honest, there's so much that's already been said. What I'd rather do is this. I'd rather ask a couple simple questions and then today offer you the gift of Jesus and then take a few more minutes where we could bow our heads and praise Him and worship our King. Now look at God saw your bondage and He didn't want you there. He wanted you out. But it took a sacrifice. And you weren't killing each other. He didn't say, I want you to kill yourself. He says, I will provide the sacrifice. This is the sacrifice. A perfect lamb. For which then, in the heart of the Father, the whole time was His own Son. And Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. It's that simple. And you are born a slave to sin. These people, every one of them was born into bondage. Do you realize that? Unless they're over 430 years old, which none of them were. Which means every one of them were born into bondage. But God heard their cries. And He says, it is time to get you out. This is going to be the beginning of the rest of your life. And it starts with a sacrifice that has to be your sacrifice. It's the sacrifice for mankind, and it is your sacrifice. God didn't so just so love the world, though God did so love the world. God so loved your name here. God so loved Peter. God so loved Mary. God so loved George. God didn't just so love the world, though He did so love the world. He so loved you. He has to be your sacrifice. The blood's been shed. The blood of Jesus that cleanses you from all sins, that brings you near to the Lord, to the Father. But are you going to apply that blood or are you just going to say, I know it's there? Because in the end of it all, God is looking for that blood. Now that sounds pretty gross, but I can just tell you, it's the blood of Jesus that's been shed for you and He wants you. He genuinely, honestly wants you. Now, friends, if you've accepted that gift, here's my question to you. Today, do you need a fresh applying of that blood? Not to re-save you the moment you gave your life to Jesus. He saved you. But have you found yourself getting numb? Numb to the worldliness around you. Becoming more like the world around you. Instead of becoming more like Jesus. Numb to people who are going to hell around you. Where before your heart used to break. 
numb to the conversations that used to be about Jesus, but now are just becoming idle. The Lord today would like to reignite that passion. Because, let's be honest, that's a bondage too. Because you know what that is? Fear of man. And according to the book of Psalms, it says that the fear of man brings a snare. And all a snare is, is a trap. And all a trap is, is bondage. Beloved, as a Christian, you could put yourself under your own bondage of the fear of man. But Jesus today would like to set you free and give you the power to stand up from under this and to declare him and to shine like God intended. Now, if you believe by faith, God wants to do that. And he will. But faith will demand some form of action. And let me say, if you are going to say yes, you better do so with your belt on and your shoes on and your staff in your hand because God's getting ready to move and he wants you to come with him. Now that's your choice to make. So beloved, as we go to prayer now, will you say yes to the Lord today? Fashion all over again. Or today, are you still in that place where you're like, you know what? I'd like to just wait. Look, at he says, that lamb's not going to wait till morning. It's going to get consumed tonight. And I want you a part of that. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, I thank you so much for the privilege of your word. I thank you, Lord, that in these beautiful verses, how you show your deliverance. And the people didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to fight for it. They just simply had to act in faith. And for the person, Lord, that, <coughs> that applied the blood was fearful, or the person that applied the blood and just knew, in the end of it all, if the blood were applied, they were safe. They were delivered. And today, God, I thank You that You've provided Your Lamb, Father, the Lamb that takes away all the sin of the world, including mine. And I thank You for the gift You've offered there. And I pray right now if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to you, that today, by your Holy Spirit, you'd show them their need. And in showing them their need, that they would cry out to you. But also today, Lord, I pray that if there be any Christians here that have become numb, spiritually leprous, that they've numbed themselves. Oh, they can see other people's faults. And they can see how other people aren't at their some, uh, some conviction. But they themselves are becoming numb to what You've told them. Today, God, reignite. Reanoint. Cleanse us with hyssop that we would be clean. We want that blood reapplied to every part of us to cover us completely. And so I pray right now, Lord God, for us that as we seek to respond, that You would lead us and if you want to commit or recommit your life to Christ today, I'm just going to pray this prayer, but I'm going to ask you to say it after me. <clears throat> I've said it enough where I'm sure you kind of know where I'm going to go with it. And I'll give you time to respond. But hey, saints, don't give me any wimpy... Be bold. And here it is. God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. You go. But I thank You. You've paid for my sins with Your Son, Your Lamb at the cross where Jesus died for me. 
that His blood would cover all my sins. That this would be the beginning of the rest of my life. A new life in You. Pure and clean in You. And Jesus died for me. For my sins. And it quenched Your wrath. And on the third day, just like You promised, He rose again. And that new life I live now, with Jesus as my Savior, my Redeemer, and my Lord, open my heart to You, God. May I experience all Your Holy Spirit wants to me to experience. To lead me. To change me. To move me. To work through me. For Your delight. In my surrender. I say I'm Yours. I am Yours. I am Yours. In Jesus' name. Amen.